afternoon, everybody. Thank you, VJ, Augie. Uh, I want to be a part of the Vincent family. Like, like a contact high, if you're around them, you just become a Levite or like a priest or something. It's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know if allergies are a thing in the desert. Are they? I might have allergies. <laughs> I have uh, uh, eye drops. Do your eyes get dry because of allergies? Or else I got something else going on. But it may happen that I have to put a drop in my eyes so one of them doesn't fall out <laughs> while I'm up here. Um, but it's good to be with you guys. Um, I intend to further our discussion on uh, Easter time, uh, resurrection. Uh, last week, uh, I tried to describe um, that hope in the resurrection in the end is uh, an indication of what you think uh, the Lord is able to do. Uh, that is, it's an indication of uh, your belief in God's great ability uh, and perhaps in his love. Um, and it's something that continues to stretch uh, my imagination uh, when I think about what is really the, the core of Christian confession has to do with uh, resurrection, uh, yet so much of it is hard to describe. Uh, that said, I think you know it when you see it, uh, because it's more than just a historical fact. It seems to be uh, the shape. Um, in addition to the cross, the, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection really are the shape of the life of faith. We embody both of those in the way we go about uh, things in God's good world. And resurrection was the, the, the basic message. If you read uh, the Acts of the Apostles, uh, there's this really telling line when Paul is before a king and they're talking about uh, why Paul has been arrested. And the basic reason is, he says, this guy Paul keeps telling everyone that this guy Jesus, who has been executed, is alive. Like, that's the central message of Christianity. The, the resurrection, that Jesus is not some isolated uh, figure from history, but he is the living um, and present God. Uh, Today I want to look at an encounter Jesus has with his disciples that has really been doing a number on me um, and leading me into some dark places for the sake of finding light. Um, but it's been a confrontation, I think, for me. What I think, again, uh, what I think is possible with God. Um, so I've given the title to, to the, the sermon, The Death of Despair, because if you've ever experienced hopelessness, especially hopelessness due to perhaps shame, uh, you, you'll, you'll know what I mean as we go forward. Um, but the resurrection actually means that not only will death not have the final word, but as we'll see, our failures um, and our inability to keep faith over sustained periods of time uh, shall also not have the last word. Just uh, encouraging. 
So we're going to look at John chapter 21. I have slides for you, but you're welcome uh, to turn there. Uh, but we're, we're going to see here that Jesus is a pure victim who does not condemn. Now, as soon as I said the word victim, some of you sat up a little taller and say, here we go, victim mentality. Well, yes, kind of. Uh, Jesus is a victim of our infidelity. Jesus is a victim of our betrayal. Specifically, we're going to see Jesus is a victim of his disciples' betrayal. But it's the one instance that, that I know of, of an individual who is innocent, refuses to retaliate, refuses to condemn, even after Jesus has risen from the dead and he encounters his disciples, there's never this, where were you? You failed. You dropped the ball. There's none of that. There's no impulse within this, this God this Messiah who's died because of human beings, there's no impulse in him to condemn. And that's not just a way of feeling okay about ourselves. Thank God he forgave us. Now we don't have to worry about going to hell. But actually, that state of having been forgiven by the one whom we have had a hand in harming is how we move forward with any kind of message of hope. How you doing? Today will probably be deep. My apologies. Uh, um, but so let's begin uh, with something that perhaps we, we had a discussion like this in our family group. Uh, and this has been helpful for, for me. Um, but you've heard of this idea of forgive and forget. You know this good or a bad thing. Yeah, it depends. Should we forgive and forget? The sentiment is pretty clear, I think. We're not going to keep a record of wrongs, right? You harmed me. And my decision to cancel that debt, to use some New Testament language for thinking about uh, forgiving, um, I won't hold that against you anymore. It won't come between us. But of course, you're probably thinking there are instances wherein when you've been wronged, it would be unwise to just pretend like it never happened. And many of folk have found themselves uh, over and over again, submitting themselves to abuse. But the, that leads me to wonder, does God forgive and forget? There, there are a few hints in Scripture that God shall, to use the language of Jeremiah, I shall remember your sins, speaking to the exiles, no more. And that, of course, is picked up in the letters or sermon, I don't know what we call Hebrews, but... Um, as an indication of what's happened in Jesus Christ, that God shall not call to mind our sins. But there is also the idea here, I'm going to argue that God, in fact, does not forget our sins. He doesn't choose to hold them against us. Thank him for that. <laughs> but in fact, forgetting our failures would do us harm. And so God chooses not to use them as a stick with which to beat us or to dangle them in front of us, always reminding us that we are failures. But it seems like God wants us to, to grasp the fact that we failed and betrayed God. 
At least that's something he wanted for his closest followers. If God were to forget, and we could be thinking about this as we read this text, what would be at stake? If we were just to pretend like what has happened to us didn't happen, it was over and done, or the things we've done wrong are just forgotten, what would be lost in that? You think about that when we read. Let's look at at John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Now, after this, uh, what happened before this in the gospel, uh, according to John, is Jesus had risen from the dead on the first day of the week and appeared to his disciples. He's already had an encounter with them. They've had an encounter with him. And this language of he revealed himself, or that what the text says is he, he appeared, um, is often uh, used to describe uh, Jesus appearing physically. And that's an important bit here about resurrection. I know I've, I've waved this banner quite a bit, uh, but it's important to grasp here that resurrection is not some kind of soulish Thing, that it's just like Jesus's ghost rose from the dead. The material of his body was not there when they went to the tomb. It was empty. Whatever Jesus's resurrected state is, it's very physical. It's embodied. It's life in God's world, but almost with a twist. Jesus' resurrection means strange things, like he's unrecognizable at times. We'll see that today in this passage. That somehow he can appear in a locked room, yet he gets hungry and he eats and he bears the marks of the crucifixion. But this resurrection is not God's statement that he shall throw away what he's made in the world and in creation, but it's a statement that he intends to restore it. It's an important bit to know about the God whom you assemble every week to worship. He's not in the business of annihilating what he's made, but to restore it. And Jesus is Resurrected state is an indication that that's the direction of all creation. The idea is we shall be as he is. He is, as Paul says, the firstborn from among the dead. But in <clears throat> before this, Jesus has appeared a couple of times. But just before that, Jesus was crucified. He was Arrested, beaten, executed, and buried. And before that, he was betrayed by his closest followers. Remember a few weeks ago, we had a sermon about Jesus riding into Jerusalem, and the pilgrims coming with him were chanting and shouting, Hosanna, save us, uh, the son of David. Everyone's praising God for Jesus Christ. Well, that didn't last long. In Luke chapter 22, when Jesus tells his disciples that they are going to reject him and kill him, the people of God are going to do this. 
The church is going to do this. And Peter gets up very self-assured, confidence, uh, confident of his faith. And he says, you know, if you're going to die, then they're going to have to kill us too. We're going with you. Jesus, Jesus' followers are very sure that their loyalty to him will not be broken by the threat of death or by danger. But in chapter 18, when Jesus is arrested, Peter finds himself at the high priest's home where Jesus is indoor, apparently not that far off based on what we read in the other accounts of the gospel. While he's being questioned, kind of arraigned, ready to be handed over to Pilate, Peter's outside in front of the charcoal fire and they're asking him, aren't you, aren't you, are you with them? And Peter denies it three times. Like he stresses it. No, I've told you two times already. I am not connected to that dude. Back off. Now he had been the one who said he would maintain faithfulness. And here he is having blown it. But we're not talking like blown it as in he went to that website he ought not have gone to again. He's betrayed God. When, when his confidence in what he would do for his master was tested, he said, no, I do not know the guy. How do you recover from that? You know what it feels like to blow it, right? To be, have a track record of having had some success in a particular area or pretty sure that you're on the right track, you're really faithful to Jesus, He's forgiving you, you're learning, and then you blow it. And imagine blowing it this bad. You're looking right at Him. I don't know that dude. Right there. And they're blowing it. And here's the key. As disciples... Jesus. They're blowing it as his followers. We're not talking like pre-Christian Peter or something like that, to use a ridiculous anachronism. We're talking about Peter who's been following him for a long time. That's like one of many of us in the room who have been doing it and confident we've been doing it well and then blowing it so colossally and having to deal with that fact. The shame would be crippling. Many folks don't recover from those kinds of failures. We probably expect more of Peter because of all we know about him. But imagine living with that. And then in chapter 20, Jesus appears in that locked room. <clears throat> what do you imagine's coming if you're Peter? I thought you said they'd kill you too. I looked to my right and my left. I didn't see you. I didn't see Peter. You weren't hanging there with me. But Jesus does none of that. Instead, he sits down and has a meal with these men and women. But that is, you can imagine this, for the resurrected victim of their crimes. That is an elephant in the room which must be dealt with. And even if Jesus has forgotten it, It'd be good to talk about it, at least for Peter's sake, for crying out loud. Because that will form and confuse what Peter thinks he is. How you doing?
Okay, verse 2. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to him, children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were unable to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. What a strange encounter. But the disciples apparently have returned to life. They knew Jesus was out there having risen and he could reveal himself at will. That was his decision to reveal himself. And when he reveals himself, it's an indication. It's his initiative taking that step of restoring broken fellowship. But it's confusing for the moment. We know what we've done. We're back home. They killed Jesus. He's risen from the dead. I don't know what we're supposed to do now. <laughs> How many of you become Christians and it burns hot and bright for a few minutes and it kind of tapers off and then you go to a conference and you get really excited again and then that tapers off and then you're like, I don't know what to do. I used to like, for me, I used to like, you know, cut records and like write rhymes. So I think I'll do that. I think I'll do what I used to do. That used to be how I understood myself. It seems like something like that is going on. And Peter seems to be like the unofficial leader of these guys from the north. I'm going fishing. And the other six, okay, that's good a plan as any, we'll go too. But they're out now fishing, and the Lord appears to them. And he asks them, have you caught anything? It's a, it's a good question when we return to our former lives in confusion, vocational crisis, midlife crisis, whatever it is we find ourselves dealing with. You catch anything? We've been doing it all night. No luck. Try the other side. And they have a catch, 
so large that they can't do what you normally do, which is draw the net in, but you've got to drag it. And then they realize, oh, he's, he's back. <laughs> and Peter is excited about that because I'm guessing he hasn't caught anything and he's probably not wanting to just go back to his old life. And he runs ashore. Really interesting. The way this Peter's even described here, are you familiar with the story of Jonah? Not, not Jonah and the, the whale. Get that out of your head. Uh, the, the veggie tales or whatever else you've heard about Jonah. It's, ve- it's actually not very much about a fish at all, the story of Jonah. Uh, but it's about a prophet who, as the text says, goes down onto a ship down into the guts of the ship, and the ship goes down to Tarshish, and Jonah goes down to the bottom of the sea. He just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. Peter is seen here going down onto the ship, and, and finally when, when God causes a storm in the story of Jonah, because Jonah is, uh, story of Jonah, because Jonah is in fact running from God, he tells them, throw me overboard, it's the only way to kill this storm. God's after me, not y'all. But here Peter is seen throwing himself. It's like almost a direct quotation from Jonah, uh, giving the sense that perhaps Peter is kind of running in some way. But he's, he's thrown, he throws himself over and dashes for his Lord. I always find it curious that it says no one dared ask him if it's Jesus. You think you'd know if you're sitting in the presence of someone you've been around, which tells you that something, something is different. But the disciples have had a catchless night wandering around the lake. And now they are invited to breakfast. And Jesus does not need their fish, by the way. In fact, he's already got some on the fire. It's kind of like, bring some of the fish you just caught. Like, share, why don't you join in this meal? Oh, some of the fish that you just gave to us through a ridiculous miracle? Can do. <laughs> well, I'll run and grab the net quick. Peter must have been a beast. Uh, it took the whole crew to drag it in, and he just runs out there quick. Give me this net. And brings it in. And brings fish to share. But now they have a meal. And it's a familiar setting. Uh, this, this individual who is close to Jesus and has betrayed him, and it hasn't been discussed yet, finds himself on the shore, having been confused about what to do next, apparently, sitting around a charcoal fire. Which is something he was probably in his mind. Probably it was in his mind, because it was in fact around a charcoal fire that Jesus denied the Lord three times. This word is only used two times in the whole New Testament, and it's only in John 18 and John 21. Anthrakia, like coals, hot burning coals. There Jesus and Peter sit before this coal fire. And you've got to imagine as you smell the coal, and there you are standing with Jesus. I hope he doesn't bring up a few weeks ago. But Jesus doesn't really. He, he doesn't really bring up what Peter has done wrong. But I think everybody knows. Everyone knows that it's awkward. 
that Jesus, as a victim of their crimes, has yet to say, that really hurt, guys, at least. Or, you need to be punished for that. But instead, here's a picture of the God of the Bible when humans betray him, inviting them to breakfast. It's quite a thought. That should be burned into our imaginations. That God, that's how God deals with our infidelities, our betrayals. The idea here is that it's like only a couple weeks after the wedding ceremony and they've already cheated on their husband. And the, the master, the one who's been cheated on, says, let's have breakfast. But it doesn't stop with let's just forget about it. It's subtle. But watch how Jesus guides Peter back through his failures for Peter's sake. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said Simon Peter, uh, to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Interestingly, in Matthew, it's Simon, son of Jonah, which even more heightens the, uh, what I mentioned about uh, Peter being seen as Jonah here. But Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands to another and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God by what death, by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is amazing. But Peter had denied Jesus three times. And here after breakfast, maybe just when you think it's off the hook or we can just move forward, Jesus subtly asks Peter, gives him another chance, three three more times. They asked you three times if you knew me, and you said no. So let's try this again. Do you love me? Do you love me more than all these guys? You said you did. But how did that work out? Do you love me more than... I think it's these guys is the reference. He says, you you know everything. But he's bringing Peter back to where he blew it. Not shaming him. Not saying, you blew it and you said you wouldn't. But he's leading him back through it. Because as it turns out, when you place faith in the Lord, in our language, become a disciple, a baptized disciple. When this happens, apparently, dirty little secret, the past isn't erased. Did you, did you learn this yet? <laughs> Stay tuned if you haven't. If you haven't learned this, you're living in a naive world, which I'd like to live there too. But the truth is, 
Becoming a Christian does not erase what we've done or everything that's happened to us. Now, don't hear me saying that Jesus holds it against us or something like that. But we live out of that. As I heard uh, someone say uh, recently, the self is what the past is up to right now. (laughs) That our past shape inform and guide who we are, where we've been and where we're going, and undealt with areas of our life which haven't been healed, worked through with God, prayed about. We operate still out of those undealt with areas. See, there's this idea that we just kind of hover above reality, transcendent, and we just make decisions based on pure reason and will. That's not how it works. We act out of a very complicated life. (laughs) The decisions we make, the things we do, the relationships we have, even with other Christians or even with the church. God is inviting Peter, who's blown it as a follower of Jesus, to work that out. To not just leave it undealt with. Because you'll continue to think about what you've done in the wrong way. Or even worse, you won't think about it and it'll still have power over you. You'll continue to think about what you've done maybe too much or too little. How you doing? But Jesus is bringing Peter along. And don't leave the room. And this will be a hard sell in the therapeutic West. <laughs> But Jesus wants Peter to have an identity as a failure. Just let us sit for a moment. It's important that Peter knows he's failed. It's vital, in fact, that that bit about the gospel is never forgotten. Did you know that the gospels were penned by this group of disciples? And they thought to include over and over again, especially in the gospel according to Mark, their failures. How you doing? How about this? When Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, he says it, the tradition about the Lord's Supper begins with on the night he was betrayed. Why bring that up? It's important for them to know they betrayed Jesus. It's important for us to know that they betrayed Jesus. And it's not important for that Peter to know it so that Jesus can hang it over him. So you should be ashamed of yourself, you failure. No, that's not the idea at all. But as a failure now, Jesus extends a hand. Says, that failure... Just like my death, your betrayal ended in my death, but it didn't end there. I rose, didn't I? Nor shall your failure define who you are. Bring it forward into the new life. You failed. It's not a big deal. In fact, it's at the very point where we've found ourselves not faithful, unable to preserve ourselves. That's the place God uses to glorify himself. We now, Peter at least now, has an experience of God, not just as one who's forgotten his sin, 
but as one who is a reconciling kind of God, who doesn't ignore what's been done, but allows what's happened to be incorporated into this new life. Not for shame, but for a sense that. And here it is. You failed, but it doesn't matter. Your failure shall not have the last word. And look at this. What does he say in these verses? Tend my sheep. Not only does Jesus pull back, not pull back from Peter or ignore him, he says, you're still Peter. You're not Simon. No fishing. That's, get out of the boat. You're still Peter to me. Your betrayal doesn't make me betray. You're still the pillar upon which I intend to frame out this thing we call the church. I still have plans for you. And now you know the forgiveness of God. Now you know that God's forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting, but acknowledging so that you may glorify God. How you doing? Everyone rushing to the therapist after this? Our minister told us we're all uh, failures. Think of it like this. There's a few metaphors we can, uh, that's helping me. The first has to do with orienteering. Are you familiar with orienteering? Anyone ever heard of this? It's like a, um, it's like a team building project. You can pay money uh, to like different groups uh, and they'll get you lost in the woods and give you a compass and a map and then you've got to find your way out. I've done it before. Eh, I'm, I'm good with like not getting lost for a fee. Um, but they give you a compass and a map and you find your way, you find your way out. And one of the ways you locate yourself when you are lost in the wilderness is to do this thing called triangulation. Uh, they do this in surfing too, at least on the, uh, up, like at Mavericks in Northern California. So you know where the, this, the where the, the waves are. But you triangulate so that you know where you are. And here's the idea. You find out where north is. Once you've found north, you locate two objects in the distance that are apart from one another, that you can see two high objects, a hill, a group of trees, something like that. And you find one and you draw a line from that object to where you are right on the map. And you find another object and you draw a line from that object to where, to where you are, where you think you are, rather, based on those two objects. And that will tell you where you are pretty close to where you are. This is kind of what Jesus is doing for Peter. I want you to locate two objects in the distance so that you know where you are. First object is your betrayal, your failures. Keep an eye on that. Draw a line straight from there to you. The other is God's mercy. Find it in the distance and draw a line straight from there. There you'll find yourself. A failure who is loved by God and forgiven. A restored individual who is not just absolved of sin. You're free now. You don't have to burn in hell. But you are summoned to use the place where you failed to show the mercy of God. If these men did not fail like this as the followers of Jesus for years, if they hadn't failed after having followed Jesus for that long, what do you think would motivate them to do what they went on to do? 
See, they had no real experience in their lives of being truly forgiven by doing something that would shake you to the core. Now they have it. They've failed. It's kind of the point the gospel is driving at. I'm beginning to think that this experience of being forgiven by Jesus after having betrayed him is the only thing kept keeping them going. Now they know what resurrection in the body means. It's to be forgiven. And isn't it hard to be an arrogant jerk as a Christian when you know you're a failure who's been loved by God? When you tell someone, stop sinning, you can do it without condemning them because why? You know you're a failure too. You know that you've been embraced by God having blown it. And so there's no excuse for you to not call people to turn back to the one whom they've harmed because he will have dinner with you and forgive you. It's the fuel in the tank, so to speak. These guys have an experience of having been forgiven and it's the witness that they have to share. Look at what Jesus has done for us. He will do that for everyone who turns to him. If he did that for us, What does Paul say? Paul has a very similar experience to Peter. Paul says, I was the worst. I made Peter look like a saint. (laughs) But look at what God has done in my life. It's my witness. It's the power. I'm not just out here peddling packages of truth so that you'll come and believe and be spared from hell. I'm giving witness to the experience of being a failure and being loved by God. It's pretty awesome. Here's another image that's helping me. Are you familiar with Kintsugi? If you're familiar with Kintsugi, recently it's probably because of Makoto Fujimura's book, Art and Faith, um, which is a great book. Uh, It's like a theology of making or something like that. But he uses Kintsugi uh, as a way of thinking about resurrection. Now, here's the idea. It has to do with, apparently, high tea culture in Japan. But when, like, a precious, uh, some tea wear, like tea, T-E-A, follow me, like tea, sipping tea. Uh, uh, when one is broken, the family would hold on to the broken pieces of that important pot or bowl or cup or whatever, until they could find a Kintsugi master who will then reassemble this broken bowl. But everywhere where they reassemble, they won't try to hide the cracks. In fact, they'll highlight it with gold. So what we have here is something more beautiful than having not been broken. You have a bowl here which has been broken into, a, into many pieces. And then put back together and rather than covering up all the places where it was broken, putting gold there so you notice them. And the final product is more beautiful than when it was made to begin with. You see all of the broken parts. But where you see failure and shame, you find gold. This is the idea. The resurrection means that God is reaching out to us. And I'm not just talking like our pre-Christian lives, even our failures in the church. To welcome us back and, and not just to say you're absolved, you're acquitted, but to say 
you're still mine. I still want to use you to further my kingdom. Think about it. Peter, the failure, is like the greatest person we know of when it comes to believing in Jesus. I thank God that this little story has been included. We'll wrap up here. I'll read this to you from Rowan Williams. This is great. The memory of failure is, in this context, the indispensable basis of a calling forward in hope. Peter, in being present to Jesus, becomes painfully and nakedly present to himself. But that restoration to him of an identity of failure is also a restoration of an identity of hope. The presence of Jesus, still faithful, still calling, inviting his followers to love him, opens out the past in grace. To be present to myself before the risen Jesus is to be present to God. And to know that the presence signifies mercy, acceptance, and hope. To know oneself as a reconciled sinner is to know God as a reconciling Savior. Being present to God means everything we are, all of our past. And to find in all of our brokenness in the presence of God, not condemned, but invited forward, now you got something to tell someone about. Now you have something to to truly fall on your knees and praise God for. Not just that he's not counting your wrongs against you. He says, hold on to that. I love that. Look at what God's going to do. Let's highlight that. Let's highlight that betrayal. Let's tell the whole world. Let's write a book called the Bible and fill it with all your failures, guys. Let's put gold all over it so that the whole world sees how even the best who were closest to me stumbled and failed and in the crucial moment fell over. Not as like they hated Jesus or something, but they just gave in. They fell over. Tell the world about that and tell them how I still used you to form the church. And the church will change planet Earth. But so what's the takeaway here? Where are you at? Do Do you even think about the idea of the need for mercy in, in our lives. It's really easy for, I've been a Christian 26 years or something like that, and I show up every week. I think I've missed reading the Bible and praying like twice, because I have OCD, if you didn't know that. Like, I mean, there's a joke, but like, I, like I, won't, I won't let go. Like, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. But sometimes, for long periods of time, I find that the whole notion of being a part of the church, worshiping Jesus, just becomes like a thing I do rather than a glad response to the fact that I'm not the greatest gift in the world, but God still uses me and loves me and thinks I'm amazing. If we don't spend time in the presence of God all that we are, we lose the power for the life of faith. The weight behind all of it. So I think this story, it shows how God wants to reconcile his followers 
but indirectly, us, all of us, to be brought before Jesus in relationship. And here's the other really cool thing. We'll close here. When we find God giving this embarrassing amount of mercy and grace to us. Think of the parable of the lost son when he's running. Uh, His dad is like keeping watch for the son who is like more than blown it, right? And he's keeping watch. And he sees the son and he runs out to him and he puts a ring on his finger and he says, kill the calf. My son was dead and he's alive. Imagine how embarrassed you'd be as the kid who didn't really show up out of a broken heart anyways. But there you are and your dad's kissing you and putting you, not the ring, not the fat calf, not the cloak. Come on. Like, no, I just want to just forget what I did. Like, no, we can't forget it. It's amazing. You left and you died and you're back. And let's celebrate. When that happens for an individual, you can get rid of the commands at a certain point. Because now you are faithful because of the relationship which God has created in your failure. Relationship with God will always carry far more weight than just keeping some list. There's a command, do not commit adultery. Do you know this? I don't commit adultery on Justine, but not because there's a command. At a certain point, I'm grateful the command told me not to do that. But now Justine keeps me from committing adultery. Do you see what I'm saying? The relationship carries the weight. You can get rid of that command. I'm not going to do that. The relationship carries the weight. Why would I violate the love of God? Will we do it still, though? We do it. Because we fall out of touch with the relationship. And so I love that even in our greatest failures, when the relationship fails, we can find ourselves coming back, get more gold on the cracks, and go out and be more energized by the fact that God embraces us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are... Grateful. We're grateful for the love you show to us. We're grateful that you are beyond like a therapist who just fixes us. But you acknowledge all that we are and you redeem it all like a Kintsugi master. You make us into something so beautiful. All of the warts and cracks become covered with gold and just proclaim and testify to your love. We're grateful for that, God. You see all that we are all the time and and you love us as children. I thank you that you gave us the story of Peter's restoration. I thank you that even though he couldn't do what was called for you still used him i thank you that the cross does not mean death which is what it meant in the ancient world it meant death and dishonor and shame but you turned it into glory you brought about a newness that we're still discovering with each day 
Father, we pray to enter into relationship with you. To stand before you on a daily basis as forgiven. Help us to see, Father, your love. Help us to share that forgiveness, God. Help us to become, as we look at the cross, the resurrection, the bread and the cup, that we become people who not only feel safe because of your mercy, but who also forgive and extend that grace onward, forward to others. We thank you for this meal. We thank you for the bread. We see in it not only your brokenness, but our own. We thank you for your blood, which gives us assurance of what you shall do with all we've done. Thank you for your son. It's in Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.